What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and the host of the What to Know podcast show. And today you're going to get a special experience with not just a guest, but a couple of amazing guests, uh, one of which you've heard before. And that is my colleague, Abby Hayes. She's a managing director out of our New York office, and she's worked in the healthcare industry for over 20 years with U.S. and Global Experience. Uh, probably more important for this show, she is one of the founders and leaders of our Fusion Employee Resource Group at W2O. And then I'm really excited to announce that I'm going to have Abby actually do the guest interviewing today because uh, this is a passion place of hers. But Nicole Hannah-Jones, who you've probably heard of already, She's an award-winning investigative reporter who covers civil rights and racial injustice for the New York Times Magazine. Uh, she is spearheading the 1919 project. You know, only. I've been digging in, and it's very exciting. It's a multimedia project that has been organized by the New York Times with a goal of reexamining the legacy of slavery in the U.S. And, of course, it's time to the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the first enslaved Africans in America. So, first of all, welcome, Abby. Welcome, Nicole. So happy to have you on the show today. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thank with you that, so Abby, much. Yeah, and with that, I'm going to just turn it over to you, and you have a lot of great questions to ask, so uh, listeners, sit back, relax, and get ready to be schooled on something that's really, really important, and I didn't mention this. We want to talk about some of the um, injustices in the healthcare system, and that's why you know we have two experts that can really speak eloquently to this. So, Abby, with that, I'll let you jump in, and I'm going to go on mute, and uh, I'll revisit toward the end of the show once the two of you wrap up. Great. Thank you so much, Aaron and Nicole. It's such a pleasure and honor to speak with you today. I've been looking forward to this day for months because I feel like I'm now going back to my journalism roots. I used to actually want to be a reporter, so I feel like this is almost like a full circle moment. So, really, really excited to be speaking with you today and kind of Speaking about journalism and inspirations, one of the first questions I want to ask you is, what actually inspired you to, to want to become a reporter? So I have always been interested in the news, even from being a really young child. My um, dad always subscribed to two newspapers. He always subscribed to our daily newspaper and the state, our local newspaper and the state newspaper. So I grew up in a household where my father consumed the news and I used to read the newspaper with him. The newspaper used to have a kid's section back in the day and I would always uh, read the Sunday kid's section. So I've always really been interested. Uh, I think I got my first letter to the editor published either in fifth or sixth grade when I uh, wrote a letter in response to a column that was uh, ran in the newspaper that I thought was racist. Um, and then as a high school student, I was bused into white schools and one day complained to an educator of mine about how our high school newspaper never wrote about uh, black kids like me who were bused into the school and uh, who made up most of the black kids at the school. And he suggested I either join the newspaper or shut up and stop complaining about it. So uh, I joined the paper and started writing stories about students like me and 
I think that's really when I started to seriously think that I might want to pursue journalism as a career. So my, my two loves were really history and journalism, and I majored in history and African American studies in college, but ultimately decided that um, historians write about the past and they write for other history nerds um, and journalists write for the masters and actually can produce work that looks at the past but can change the future. And that's what made me decide I really wanted to become a journalist. Well, I mean, that's that's an amazing story. And it's almost, I mean, it's it's truly reflective of the concept of the political becoming personal and vice versa, and really truly finding ways to use your voice to be able to, you know, provide perspective and also kind of give others a voice and a say. You mentioned um, being bused into school, and I know that when you first worked as um, an investigative reporter, you did spend three years chronicling the way official policy not like created and also kind of maintained segregation in housing and schools. What were some of the most surprising things you learned coming out of that project? Uh, I mean, I've been writing about school segregation my really my entire career. My first mm-hmm. job as a journalist was covering uh, the Durham Public Schools in North Carolina, and that was a majority black, uh, heavily segregated school district. So mm-hmm. I've been writing about these issues, uh, really, again. And I, I wouldn't be able to say, you know, sum up any one thing that I learned in this reporting, mm-hmm. because when I first started out as a journalist, uh, I didn't know anything about covering education or about how school segregation worked. And just as part of becoming a good journalist, I loved, I learned a ton of things. I think the thing that probably surprised me fairly early on and that continues to surprise uh, a lot of people who read my work was that Mm -hmm. the North was uh, more segregated than the South. And we have this idea that uh, the South is backwards and racist and the North is progressive and um, egalitarian. And that simply isn't true. And in fact, New York state is the most segregated state in the country for black children. And California is the most segregated state in the country for Latino children. And these are the two bluest states that we have. So I think that's the thing that surprised me initially as a reporter and that continues to surprise folks though if they're being honest, it should not be surprising because you can look, you know, across northern cities and see the segregation in pretty stark terms. But I think there's a lot of denial about that. Mm-hmm. So speaking of not only these misperceptions and disparities and, you know, the kind of larger issue of denial, I, I feel like some of those themes may have served as inspiration for the 1619 Project because, I mean, one of the things that you know, really stood out for me with it, which is I have probably now schooled my entire family on our WhatsApp group and instructed them to read every facet of it because the thing that has been most impactful for me is the, is the way you were able to illustrate how slavery has become, you know, kind of led to racism becoming institutionalized across this country. And I think even just with the examples you gave in terms of segregation in, you know, the school systems across the country. I mean, that's one aspect of it. But all that to say, um, just wanted to hear from you what the collective
collective inspiration was, if you will, for the 1619 project, kind of just knowing everything that you've reported on in the past and everything that we've seen come to life in that initiative? Yeah, I think it's, it's a couple of things. It's the understanding that this year was the 400th anniversary of what I consider to be a foundational moment in American history, but it's a moment that is um, almost completely marginalized from the national narrative. And we have spent a very long time trying to downplay the role of slavery because uh, to acknowledge the centrality of slavery is to acknowledge our founding hypocrisy. And we have not had a desire to do that. So to me, what the 1619 Project is trying to do is um, it is answering that kind of quintessential question that Black people always get, which is that slavery was a long time ago. Why don't you get over it? Um, this project is not a history of slavery in America. It is a project that is assessing the modern legacy of slavery and really showing that we cannot get over it. It's something that is embedded in nearly every American institution that is embedded in the uh, psychology of America and that you can look all across different aspects of American life and all of these areas that you actually uh, would not think are related to slavery or anti-Black racism, and we were going to show through very rigorous scholarship all of these modern connections. So it was uh, an attempt to reframe our origin story, to force an acknowledgement of the role of slavery, that slavery predates the American Revolution by 150 years in this country, that by the time the colonists decide that they want to revolt from England, uh, slavery has already been a part of our economic, social, um, cultural, and legal systems, and that our failure to grapple with that in an honest way means that we are all still suffering under that legacy. And that's what I hoped that the 1619 Project could use this 400th anniversary as a way to, one, um, commemorate that date and force Americans who had never heard of the date, were not going to acknowledge the date whatsoever, uh, to acknowledge and then hopefully force a reckoning um, with what that legacy has meant and continues to mean. I mean, those are, I think, really powerful um, implications. And I think consider, you know, thoughtful considerations that we all need to really just sit and ponder. And one of the points that you just made that not only stood out for me, but I think is relevant to the work that we do at W2O are the disparities in healthcare? Because um, mm -hmm. I know there was one episode um, where you tell the story of your uncle Eddie and his cancer diagnosis and the struggles that he went through um, following it. And in listening to it, it not only reinforced for me kind of you know the psychology that you mentioned, but then the inherent biases that exist and still persist today. Um, Tell me a little bit more about that experience with you, with your uncle, but then also how all of that kind of has shaped um, the current healthcare landscape and disparities that face African Americans today. Well, let me just say that the the story about healthcare in the 1619 Project to me is uh, one of the most potent examples in the project of how the legacy of slavery. And the harms of that are not just contained to Black Americans. And mm -hmm. I, I think, you know, it should be clear to everyone who listens to 
uh, this podcast that we're recording right now, that the 1619 Project is not the story of Black America, it's the story of America. And mm -hmm. so that particular story was about why we are the only Western industrialized country that doesn't have universal health care and tracing that back to the desire to keep Black Americans uh, coming out of slavery and then really all the way up until now to keep Black Americans from um, social programs that white Americans, if they believe that large numbers of Black people are going to benefit from a government or social program, they oppose that program, their support for that program declines. What that mm -hmm. has meant then is that this desire to keep black people from getting something that white Americans feel is undeserved doesn't just hurt black Americans. The fact that we're the only Western industrialized country without universal health care means that millions of white Americans, Asian, Latinos, Native Americans also do not have access to health care. They are also suffering because of this race, this legacy of racism. And I think that's a very important thing for us to understand. Now, with that said, black people suffer the most because these systems are built to specifically deny Black Americans access to certain things that would allow us to have quality of life, to have uh, economic and social equality. So of course, when you look at uninsured, uh, Black people have some of the highest uninsured rates, um, suffer the most from the lack of these uh, universal programs. But all Americans suffer, we just suffer from them worse. Uh, and so I, I used in the podcast, the story of uh, my uncle, Eddie, who was my dad's brother, my favorite uncle, a uh, hardworking man who worked every day um, of his adult life, uh, but he worked the types of jobs that did not provide insurance. And he started to get very sick and to get these pains in his back, and he had to go to the free clinic because he didn't have insurance, and they wouldn't give him uh, MRIs because it was it was expensive and they didn't give them for, to people who didn't have insurance or couldn't pay for them. And by the time my uncle finally got an MRI for his back, it, the pain became almost debilitating and he started to lose his ability to walk. Um, by the time they, they did that, they found out that he had had cancer uh, for an extended period of time and that the cancer had spread throughout his entire body and it was too late. And the uh, podcast really talks about it's when he gets this um, terminal cancer diagnosis that he's able to get uh, medical, government medical insurance because he's considered disabled because he's dying. And it's only at the point where he cannot be helped, where his health cannot be saved, where his life cannot be saved, that he's able to get government health care and he's able to have insurance. Um, and I think that that story just spoke to um, how powerful racism and race is in this country where we have such a wealthy country that because we let people citizens suffer and die um, because that's the choice that we make so that's um, what that piece illustrates and then of course we have another piece in the project which is about um, not in the podcast but in the, the magazine which is about how the stereotypes that uh, come about about black health during slavery, that black people don't feel pain the same as white Americans, that black Americans have thicker skin, um, that we have uh, a smaller lung capacity, that these stereotypes that come out of slavery and that are justifying, used to justify the enslavement of black Americans 
are still believed um, in across a large spectrum of medical practitioners today. And so Black Americans are getting inferior health care. They are the least likely, you know, to be prescribed pain medication because doctors don't think that Black people need as much pain medication because they don't believe Black people feel as much pain. They actually built in this idea about Black lung capacity in medical treatment. It still exists today. The studies show that when Black people go into the hospital and they're sick, they're less likely to get kind of the life-saving tests that white Americans routinely get for the same ailments. So in that way, uh, we also are seeing very clearly that legacy of the stereotypes about Black people and healthcare and what they're deserving of and how our bodies um, work, and that is having a big impact. Um, and therefore, you see that the Black life expectancy in this country is I think about 15, 12 to 15 years shorter than for white Americans. Um, even things such as cancer, they say black women are the least likely to get mammograms that allow them to detect breast cancer, even though we get the most aggressive forms of breast cancer. And our cancers are not detected until much later. And so you have, you know, the case of my uncle who dies at the age of 50 from something that possibly could have been treated had we had a better healthcare system. Wow. I mean, that, I mean, I know as healthcare practitioners and professionals, I mean, we hear these statistics day in, day out. Um, and I mean, just hearing your articulation of it, I think, really just paints it in very stark and distressing terms, because it's just something that obviously has been so ingrained and has persisted for centuries yes. on it. You know, I think just kind of given what we do for a living, knowing that, you know, we're skilled in the power of the word, there are several channels that we can use and different ways that we can engage our communities. What, in your opinion, do you think we can be doing differently and or better to help try to address some of these inequities? Uh, I mean... I don't feel necessarily qualified to give you all advice <laughs> on uh, how to be better healthcare <laughs> practitioners, but I do think what is needed, I mean, there's, there's, there's so much, and, and I'm probably not the best person to articulate those things, but there does have to be a confrontation with the fact that we have a biased healthcare system we have a biased healthcare system because the people who are the practitioners of that system are biased as well. And it is not just about, you know, I calling people racist. And I think we need to get past that, that people have, you cannot be in this country and not grow up awash in the stereotypes of what blackness means. And no one even has to tell you these things for you to know and have these stereotypes. And if practitioners are not able to confront that, then they are giving Black people disparate treatment and often don't even know that that's what they're doing. And it is often not even an intentional decision. And I think what is important to understand is it doesn't matter whether it's intentional or not, the harms are the same. So how can we get to the point where people are able to learn and understand and address those biases? Uh, I think the other thing, which is much more, much, well, no, they're all challenging. I think that addressing those biases is extremely challenging. But even the way that we think about 
race. We know that race is a construct. We know that in America, black people are extremely racially mixed. Uh, genetically, the average black American is a quarter white. Black people can be genetically, because race is a made up thing, anywhere from 100% um, descended from Africa to 10% descended from Africa. And yet, we have these racial categories and these treatments that are supposed to be um, standardized by race that aren't actually dealing with how people are made up genetically, but they are dealing with our society's construction of race. And I think that is a huge problem when we're talking about uh, studies and trying to uh, provide medical treatment based on what we think we understand about how different racial groups react to different medicines. Um, that construct just simply doesn't work when we are in a country that had a one drop rule that said any black person who had a discernible amount, any person who had a discernible amount of blackness was considered black, even if genetically nine of their 10 ancestors were white. Um, that kind of illogical um, racing of people shows up in how um, we treat people and how we uh, study medicine and how medicine and treatment should apply to different races. And uh, I don't know how we fix that except uh, getting rid of that, that construct and that's probably not gonna happen. Yeah, I mean that, I mean for considering, like, like you said, the first you know, ship with enslaved Africans arrived in this country 400 years ago um, and we are where we are today. I mean, it might, might take the same amount of time to reverse and correct everything that exists because well it would take more than that because there was a tremendous vested interest on behalf of white powerful people to create these structures of inequality over the last 400 years and there was a tremendous amount of resources and intellectual effort that went into that uh, we don't have that same desire uh, on behalf of uh, powerful white people to correct the structure that was created. So it would take as long if you were applying the same amount of effort to undoing that you uh, apply to doing, but we will never see that type of effort, which is why I don't think we will ever undo it. There is not a desire to really undo it because undoing it means really a radical restructuring of society. And the only radical restructurings of society that you ever see come with some type of revolution. You didn't think we were going to be going there on this podcast, did you? I didn't, I didn't think we were going to go there on this podcast. And I mean, you, 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 you've given us many things to think about because, I mean, the solutions to the problem aren't simplest, aren't simple at all. No, they are not. Just given how you know, how ingrained everything is. Um, because, you know, one of the questions I had was, what did you think the current state of the healthcare system is and, and the, where do you see the future of it headed? And I mean, we you've touched on a lot of key points in terms of where we are today, um, in terms of the fact that there are several people who lack, you know, equitable access to reasonable healthcare. Um, and the fact that, you know, like you said, there's been a lot of put into and a lot invested in getting us to where we are today. Um, so it will take that and then some to undo it and obviously create a more fair and equitable system. Um, well, it's an interesting question coming from an organization like yours, because frankly, 
uh, as long as there is a profit motive around healthcare, then we've pretty much determined that healthcare will always be delivered on an unequal basis. So I don't even know that we can have a conversation about uh, bringing equality in healthcare as long as we are assuming that that means that we are going to have a for-profit healthcare system. Um, your access to life-saving medicine and life-saving treatment should have nothing to do with your income and your ability to pay for a certain type of insurance. So I don't really think you can have um, a true conversation about equity and equality and assume that this system will exist. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, those those are fair points. And I mean, I'm, you know, the non-American here on this podcast, I grew up in the Caribbean and went to school in Canada and have Canadian citizenship. So I have had I can tell by how you say you're a <laughs> <laughs> See, there you go. I've, I've, yeah, I've exposed myself, if you will. Um, and, you know, I, I, I for as much as, you know, I, I, I do what I do for a living and I think there's, you know, I am passionate about healthcare because, you know, I came from a family that, you know, I say like in Trinidad kind of pioneered community healthcare, if you will. My, my dad mm -hmm. started first um, nonprofit dialysis center in Trinidad so that people could actually get um, free dialysis because dialysis is not cheap. Um, and my mom, after he passed away, took up the baton and literally had me doing mini fundraising drives throughout my high school um to raise money um for that foundation um and you know and it's what inspired me to do what i do today um and i think that there's a lot that we do well in this industry but i think you're right i mean kind of given just the larger um you know framework within which we operate which is wholly predicated on an economic model that the united states operates on it's going to be really really hard to try to you know, shift gears and have a more, you know, fair and accessible system similar to what we see in Canada and Europe, you know, just by, you know, trying to, you know, implement some meaningful policy change. Now, I mean, we can see that our government is, is trying to move in that direction because I know the Democrats today recent, uh, just passed that House bill to try to have um, fair drug pricing. But I mean, there's going to have to be a lot more done to make sure that, you know, there is a level playing field. And those are all things that we can't necessarily solve in this conversation today. I mean, we, we, could, we could solve it. We know the answer. That's easy. Um, it's getting the political will to actually do the right thing. And the thing is, like, we do know that it's possible. Um, we have Medicare, which we have Social Security, and there are certain entitlements that all Americans, no matter their income, automatically receive. So we certainly could do that for health care. Um, but again, this is kind of the point of the 1619 Project is our unwillingness to allow people to get access to services that we think they don't deserve. And the fact that that is racialized then keeps us, I mean, we're literally, as you know, the only country that we compare ourselves to, the only Western industrialized country that does not offer universal health care. And there's a reason for that. And um, I just, you know, I'm 100% disinterested in talking about patchwork and small fixes. Uh, we're either going to be, you know, moving towards equality or we're not. But to expect that um, someone 
like my uncle should be happy that maybe the cancer drugs that he already can't afford would be incrementally cheaper and think that that's moving towards equity. It's not. What it should be is that a American citizen uh, should be able to go and receive the same type of treatment uh, that they need to save their lives as somebody, no matter if they are like my uncle who does roofing or as a CEO of a company, and that if we consider that healthcare and the right to just simply live should be the, the most basic human right, then we have to fundamentally shift uh, the way that we think about this in, in this country and what we are willing to give up to hold on to our racism. I feel like that was literally the mic drop moment. Um, <laughs> Because, I mean, you know, the, the task is bigger than ourselves, but like you said, we have, to, we have to collectively, as a country, have that political will to try to, to, try to actually push for change. Um, and, you know, I think for as much as the larger system may need to change, I still feel that there's probably, there are probably incremental things that we can do with our clients that at least try to, one, help them see and un see, understand, and appreciate the biases that exist, right? Because, you know, one of the things we hear a lot in our industry now, and you touched on this, is the fact that there's a need for more diversity in clinical trials, right? Because, like you said, there's some medicines that work, you know, for Black Americans and others that don't. You also find that very often because there's a homogeneity with the um, trials that actually have been conducted, you know, there's no guarantee that some of these medicines actually work not only in Black Americans, but in Hispanics and Latinos, and there's probably also gender differences as well. So, I mean, there are probably some small things that we can start to put in place to expose those biases, try to at least ensure that there's more diversity when it comes to research, ensure that there are more voices and other people who have seats at the table to start to push for access in the best possible way, um, knowing that, you know, the change is going to be bigger than ourselves. Mm -hmm. Agreed. So now that I know that we've had a very kind of deep and thought-provoking conversation on healthcare disparities and inequities, I'm going to pivot just a little bit because we've got on this podcast and I'm channeling Aaron right now, we like to ask just some anecdotal and personal information just to give everyone a sense of who you are, um, which I think we've already gotten in the first um, 30 minutes. Um, but just apart from all of the amazing work that you've been doing, not only as part of this project, but throughout your career, what are some other things that you're passionate about? Uh, good bourbon. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love that. You're a woman uh, after my own heart. <laughs> you know, I, um, I'm just passionate about equity and justice and um, just having very candid conversations about that. Um, I think it, to me, what, what is lost is that um, we think so much about our individual selves and what can we get for, you know, our individual advancement. And I'm really passionate about community. 
and how do we move towards uh, making decisions that are not just to our own benefit, but to our community's benefit. Um, outside of that, I just, you know, I like to have fun. I like to drink and dance and try to live uh, life to the fullest when I can. I love that. I mean, I think that's like a mantra that we all should be living by. Um, you talked about being candid, and I know we've heard your candor on this podcast. What is something, apart from everything that you've told us, that people may not know about you? Um, almost anything, I imagine. <laughs> what is something that people may not know about me? I mean, I'll give you an easy one, which is uh, I'm from Waterloo, Iowa. Most people don't think there's black people in Iowa, but there are. <laughs> I know I have a, one of my colleagues who's part of um, the Fusion Employee Resource Group is from Kansas and she also keeps telling us she's like no one believes I'm from Kansas <laughs> yeah. I always say there's, a, there's at least a couple of us everywhere you cannot escape us there might not be a lot of us but there's a few of us everywhere <laughs> you think there's something to that. In, in Trinidad, we always say that you can find a Trini anywhere in the world. And that did happen to me when I went to Japan. I literally <laughs> saw this man running from the other side of the terminal. And he looked at me and he was like, I knew it because I had um, a bandana tied to my backpack <laughs> with the, in the Trinidadian <laughs> colors. <laughs> which is really funny. And then the last one, which is a, a fun question, where was the last place that you vacationed? Because we may need to actually steal some inspiration from you as well on that front. Yeah, that's assuming I have time to go on vacation. Uh, <laughs> I have not literally, oh no, you know what? I did, I took a very mini, I was gonna say I haven't been on vacation a year and a half, but I, I took a very mini vacation with my girlfriends to Mexico City um, in September. And it was amazing. If you've never been to Mexico City, it's 100% go. Uh, all of the terrible imagery that we get about um, what Mexico is like uh, will be totally shot down if you go to Mexico City. It's, it's just a beautiful mix of the very, very old, uh, there's an Aztec temple in the middle of the city, um, but also just completely cosmopolitan with amazing food and music and culture. So. Yeah, Mexico City was amazing. And it's an easy trip from New York. Great. I think I'm going to add that to my list to make sure everyone who's listening does that as well. Because, yeah, I, I've heard it's a city that defies the expectations and it the does. stereotypes it's, it's that you great. have of it. That's amazing. I think we're all going to be adding Mexico City to our list. Um, <laughs> because I, I'm a huge fan of Mexico, but I've actually, I've actually never been inland or to the city. So I'll definitely plan to go. You will so so I, I have a feeling I will. So with that, that actually ends our podcast for today. And I think, you know, again, I would highly encourage everyone who's listening to, you know, take a look at all of the content that's up on the New York Times around the 1619 Project. It is truly awe-inspiring and informative. And as some people may know, but some of you may not, it's actually served as the inspiration for not only um, a book series, which I think is going to be published by Random House, um, but also has now become part of um, the school curriculum. Because I think, you know, slavery is one of these 
significant historical events that I think, you know, warrants a lot of introspection, um, instruction and awareness. And I highly encourage everyone to take the time to actually do a deep dive into it along with all of the supporting podcast content that I know, um, Nicole, you and your colleagues have put out on it as well. Yes. Well, thank you. And thanks for having me on the podcast. Happy to. Happy to. This has been a, this has been a pleasure. Thank you. So with that, I'm going to jump back in if I can. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O and regular host of the What's No podcast show. I have to say I've been thoroughly enjoying myself, not just being a fly on the wall, but hearing such important conversations about healthcare disparities and underserved communities, as well as more about the project. Um, Nicole, you've been a true pleasure. Nicole is an award-winning investigative reporter who covers civil rights and racial injustice for the New York Times Magazine, um, leading the New York Times game-changing the 1619 Project, which we just heard about. My esteemed colleague, Abby Hayes, uh, today's guest host, Managing Director of W2O, lead for W2O's Fusion Employee Resource Group. Thank you both so much for doing this and taking the time to talk about such an important topic. Thank you. Thank you. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.